Paceline is produced by The Cycling Independent, with the support of subscribers like you and additional underwriting from Shimano North America. We are community-focused, community-supported, and dedicated to the whole of cycling. Always remember, at The Cycling Independent, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Uh, so you're dressed awfully warmly. You headed to Vermont again? I am going to try to ski one more, the tail end of one more storm. Uh, uh, I'm doing it all. I'm, I'm training. Like, I feel um, that... Spring, although it's been really cold here, I st it still is sunny and uh, the birds are back. And so I've been riding the bike and trying to get my bike legs under me. Neat. But, you know, I can't leave well enough alone. <laughs> I do know that about you. Yeah, I do know that about you. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, I yeah. can stop, but I probably won't. <laughs> can't stop, won't stop. Um yeah, we've got another atmospheric river headed our way. And uh, on my last really rainy ride, I lost one bolt from my rear uh, uh, rear fender. And so I rode all the way home at like 13 miles an hour because a titanium fender was rubbing against a 28 millimeter tire. And, uh, oh. I, you know, uh, the amount of drag that can generate is remarkable. I bet you're right. <laughs> really, given my current fitness level, any drag is too much? Well, I mean, always. But, you know, <laughs> you, you look down at the computer and you see 13 and you're like, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, that's only because I, I can't. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, gentle. That's me, why I don't myself. run it. That's why yeah. I don't run a computer. I don't need that. I don't need that bad news. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Well, uh, what do what are we pulling on today? Today, I'm talking about Evil Knievel and BMX, obviously. <laughs> I don't know why that's obvious. Well, OK, yeah, you're talking about the connection between Evil Knievel and BMX, right? I'm talking about the gravitational pull of both those things. So I'm bringing those two things up awesome. because they are responsible for me being a lifelong bike rider. OK. In the 70s... When uh -huh. I was a little kid, traditional cycling culture, such as it was, didn't penetrate my consciousness. I had no sense of the Tour de France, France, Tour of, the Tour of France, mm -hmm. uh, or any roadie role models in my life at all, because there really weren't any American ones. Right, um, right, right. The first 10-speed boom was happening then, but I didn't really get why you would want a bike with curvy handlebars then. <laughs> okay. Evil Knievel jumping motorcycles over buses, and then what I construed as the kid-accessible version of that, BMX, uh, were what captured my imagination, mm -hmm. as I assume it did many uh, people of my age. Quite. Um, I was out with, in the woods this weekend with a friend, and we were talking about our fathers for some reason. 
Um, mine is no longer with us. But what I said to her was, my father had no interests. Hmm. Which felt like a dramatic categorical statement, but when I turned it over in my mind, it it actually rang true. My dad worked, and he worked. When he wasn't working, he thought about working. Oh, okay. I don't want to dig too deep into that here, uh, but it's one of those generational stories where he grew up poor and viewed anything other than work as frivolous. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, while at the same time, the relative prosperity he delivered to our family allowed me to be interested in things that weren't earning money. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Privileges. Yeah. Insert joke about working in the bike industry here, because I said <laughs> earning money a second ago. <laughs> and privileges. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there are privileges and privileges. Anyway. <laughs> On the other side of that conversation, I started thinking about how and why I've become such an outdoors-focused person and why bikes have been such an overwhelming part of that, and that's where Evil Knievel and BMX come in. Mm, Okay. Absent any parental guidance, although uh, my dad did, to his credit, try to teach me to ride a bike, uh, and without any kind of reasonable role models, Evil Knievel is what I'd call an unreasonable role model. <laughs> Moving through the, the world, words. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't even a good role model for his own children. Moving <laughs> through the world on two wheels became the coolest thing I could imagine doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All the other parts of bike culture came after that. And I'm grateful, obviously, that they did. But I'm also sort of amazed that you can get from there to here. Are we talking literally or, or metaphorically now? Yes. Okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, all right, please continue. Last week, I had a piece on the site called Imagination Capturing, which was about how people come to be captivated by bikes. Mm-hmm. And the basic point of it was you can't force people to love bikes. They mm. have to find that for themselves. Even if it's you that gives them some initial exposure, even if it's you that pushes them along, maybe at some point they have to fall in love on their own. Yeah. And yeah. if I, with parents who preferred to fill their hours with work and or the evening news, uh, if I can find bike riding and make a life out of it, then I think anyone can. Hmm. Evil Knievel aside, did you find bikes in a similar way or did one of your parents bring you to it or how did how did that take off for you? What was the germinal the germinal point? So there was a tricycle. I began yeah. with a, a tricycle that was, I don't know, 40, 45 pounds of, of you know, like Detroit steel. Yep. Bad uh, one. Yeah. Um, and then. Uh, my mom heard that there was a new bike shop opening up. This was right at the beginning of the, of the 10 speed boom in the early seventies. So we're talking like circa 70 or 71. Mm. And, uh, she drove us over there and she bought me, uh, Raleigh's answer to the stingray, a Raleigh chopper. Mm. Uh, and thus began my love of orange bicycles. Uh, I had to actually trace that one back a little bit. Yeah. But that was, that was my first chance to love an orange bike. Um, and, uh, the shop in question, the peddler was run by a, a couple of hippies, 
uh, who were very pro bike and very counter of culture, uh, where roughly 18, no, like roughly 16 years later, I would go to work for them. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, around that time, I had a neighbor who had outgrown his, I think, 12 inch wheel bike. 12 or 16 inch wheels. I'm not positive. Uh, it was tiny. Um, my Raleigh chopper was in fact, uh, too big for my first grade body. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so it sat, uh, in a, a storage room we had, um, kind of a junk room we had in our house, uh, for some time. And like, I would go in there periodically and think I'm big enough now to write. No, no, I was not big enough. Uh, I, with the seat lowered as low as it would go, uh, it was a tiptoe distance, uh, to the pedal at the bottom yeah. of the pedal stroke. Um, yeah. Um, but my mom was going to buy from the hippies. Uh, she was kind of a closeted hippie herself. Mm -hmm. So, um, it was a little, I think it was a Schwinn and it was purple. And like I said, it was 12 or 16 inch wheels, maybe 16. And I would rip around the neighborhood when other kids were riding their bigger bikes. Uh, I was one of the smaller kids around then. And I would rip around in our neighborhood on that thing. Uh, I would borrow it just as much as I could. And I can remember pulling total formula one turns on that thing. I didn't understand <laughs> that the physics were such that like, yes, that was a bicycle that was going to carve tighter turns than anything else in the neighborhood. I just realized that I could. And that pull of G force on my body was magic. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I hadn't given it any thought before, but you know, now that you've kind of prompted me this way, that was it. That right there. Hmm. Because learning to ride the Raleigh chopper was when that finally happened. Um, I was riding in straight lines on the sidewalk. Uh, turning it required some space and distance. <laughs> yep. Uh, whereas that little purple Schwinn, uh, with the white saddle and the white grips. Um, I, I was, you know, I was Ayrton freaking Senna. Yeah. And that was the thing. That's what gave me cycling. Well, it's funny you say that. Like I say, BMX was the thing and BMX was what was in my head, but it was a little while of bike riding before I got a BMX bike. And I had, <laughs> I had like, we had a little, my brother and I each had kind of a banana seated jalopy of a bike mm -hmm. and to get one of those off the ground, <laughs> a la a BMX bike was difficult, not impossible. And since we were spending all of our time working on that exact thing, you know, by the time I did get on a BMX bike, I was like, I mean, it was like a, it was like the, the touch paper going up because I had been trying to jump this banana seated uh, boat anchor of a bike for probably a year and a half before I got a BMX bike. And then I was like, oh, this is a spaceship. 
<laughs> and even now, if my wife and I go to the beach and we rent cruisers, I will bunny hop it and try to jump it and stuff. Because uh, I just think that's what you do with bikes. It's never stopped being fun. I hear you. I hear you. I, I still inherently have a little bit of, you know, yeah, me off the ground is still not the first thing that I do. I want to carve a hard turn. I oh. want to feel the pull of gravity. Oh. Uh, it's interesting how we have these parallels of experience of like what lit you up at nine or whatever is also what was lighting me up at, well, like six. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. Very and much. Evil Knievel, I think he, I really credit Evil Knievel with setting an example that I thought that that is what I want to do. He he certainly was uh, a time tested uh, source of inspiration for all manner of bad plans. Yes. I mean, he was proof that, you know, well, you probably live through it. Yeah, I think he was. I think about um, like jumping off the roofs of people's houses. Never did that. <clears throat> yeah, I did because I was like, I think it'd be OK. <laughs> how and how it was, wrong and can it was, this go? Yeah. Yeah. That's how I broke my foot. How wrong can this go? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It could definitely go wrong for mm. sure. But, you know, when you're a kid, you're made of rubber and like just having that an, an adult role model who's like, yeah, I would dare. I dare do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you think, well, I want to dare to do things, too. You know, I didn't know that triple dog dare was a thing until I watched A Christmas Story because we didn't need a double dare in my neighborhood. One dare was sufficient. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And mostly when someone dared you to do something, you wanted to do it. Yes. Um, fear it, might have held you, given you pause, but you wanted to do it. A, a dare wasn't a spur. It was validation. Yeah. And that's how I feel now. If we rent like a step through beach cruisers, I feel like, <laughs> do you dare me to jump it? <laughs> My wife is usually saying, no, I don't dare you at all. Don't do that. <laughs> and she has solid history with you to know exactly why she is not daring you. Oh, she's definitely. Yeah, she knows why uh, she's not daring me. But she's usually shortly thereafter hearing uh, a bunch of uh, cheap uh, aluminum and rubber hitting the pavement harder than it ever has before. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, yes. Yes. And yes, absolutely. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All righty. We're going to take a break and we will be right back. The Paceline is produced by the Cycling Independent with the support of subscribers like you and additional underwriting from Shimano North America. We are community focused, community supported and dedicated to the whole of cycling. Always remember at the Cycling Independent, if you ride bikes... You're one of us. Okay, we're back with the Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. What's your poll? Well, today I'm going to talk about uh, a surprising development here in the U.S. bike market. Uh, surprising to me, anyway. I'm going to preface this by pointing out that compared to Europe, the Europe, uh, the the U.S. was very slow to adopt 
e-bikes in any form. Uh, Europe said, easier pedaling? Where do I sign? The puritanical U.S. said, no, we must suffer while puddling. Otherwise, our effort is not true or some such. Um, That's my unfair characterization that is entirely accurate, I think. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But, you know, let's face it. U.S. cities, uh, you know, started sort of compact like like European ones. And then they started being designed around cars. And then our governments began actively planning against other modes of transportation, like the way L.A. ripped out all the trolley tracks mm. uh, at the behest of the Goodyear Corporation. Um, mm. And the bike lost favor because we created cities for which bicycles simply were not practical. Uh, the distances were just too great. That, I think, more than anything else is why cargo bikes and utility bikes never caught on around here. Europe chose not to demolish their downtowns to make high-rise buildings and squirt interstates through neighborhoods. Well, that's precisely what we did. Mm. The advent of e-bikes and the realization that we need to make it easier to get around cities without driving everywhere in a four-ton SUV has made transportation by bicycle a new and novel thing. How simultaneously comical and absurd and sad. Slightly depressing, yeah. Yeah. But here's the thing, okay? The average commuter e-bike can't do much. I'm sort of amazed at how few e-bikes I see on the road that don't have anything at all strapped to the rear rack. Right. Most of the direct-to-consumer e-bike companies are selling the majority of their e-bikes with fenders, racks, and lights. It is a made-to-go, you know, ready-out-the-door commuter bike. Mm. And... You know, nothing against anyone for not not being on a bike, you know, when it's dark. But, you know, you've got the rack there and yet we never see anything strapped to it. At least I don't ever see anything strapped to it. Mm-hmm. I think a big part of that is that it just hasn't been all that practical for most people. Uh, mm-hmm. They're, you know, the company set these bikes up, but then they don't do much in terms of uh, closing that loop. Uh, they might offer the accessories for someone to buy, but you know, a lot of the, a lot of the panniers, they're kind of small and floppy and how do you put groceries in there? And will, will my laptop really fit? So I don't think, I don't think the bike industry has done a great job that way, but we are finally seeing something of a proliferation in cargo and utility e-bikes. I am pleased to note that both Trek and Specialized have introduced some utility e-bikes. Also, in the D2C category, Rad Power Bikes, uh, Aventon or Aventon, I never can get that one right, and Electric have all introduced cargo bikes, cargo e-bikes. What has the ability to cause a big shift in e-bike use to my eye, is the ability to carry kids and a load of groceries. Uh, Specialized now has the Globe Hall ST and Trek introduced the Fetch Plus. Um, There's the Fetch Plus 2, which is a long tail. uh, Mm -hmm. And then the Fetch Plus 4, which is a big back feet style bucket Hmm. e-bike. 
they're neat. They are, they are certifiably neat. Uh, People can and will park their cars more if they can do more than just ride somewhere on their own. We're seeing more basket designs and more open top panniers. Uh, And while, like I said, bucket bikes are out there like the Trek Fetch Plus 4, I think long tail designs are where it's at. Um, That's what will allow you to carry a kid or two uh, to ride behind the rider. And, you know, most of them will still allow you to uh, mount some sort of basket on the front so you can carry a couple of bags of groceries. That's what my Yuba spicy curry is. Uh, I've got a big basket on the front and uh, I can carry both boys on the back. Uh, Can is a a sort of a a loose indeterminate verb uh, because it does not (laughs) uh, it does not fully encompass the challenge of trying to now talk my 13 year old into getting on the thing. He does not want to be seen on the back of a bike anymore. Fair enough. No, not fair enough. Not fair I, enough. I mean, I understand where he's coming from, but the swap, the, the hot swap there is for to for to do his own pedaling. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't mind if he was actually willing to do that. Um, a neighbor of ours gave us an old, old Schwinn uh, mountain bike, you know, that you can fit like 1.75 inch wide tires on. Mm-hmm. He gave us one of those uh, because he didn't want it in his garage anymore. And I cleaned it up and got it ready for a Philip to ride as basic transportation. And that kid will not get on that bike. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, I might be a different story if it was an e-bike though. Uh, Oh yeah. 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 Uh, but so I'm, I'm really encouraged by what I'm seeing. Uh, I've got a colleague who pronounced 2023, the year of the e-cargo bike and he ain't wrong. Well, I like his and your optimism. Um, I fear that, there's a bit of a catch 22 around urban cycling infrastructure and people's comfort riding those bikes. Mm. You know, I see them around the town I live in. The town I live in is small and definitely I'll see people on long tail uh, bikes with their kids and some folks doing their grocery shopping that way. But we have bike path we have bike lane, I should say, on our main drag mm-hmm. from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uptake on those bikes is still fairly small. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think this I fear that this will be really a geographic thing where some cities and towns uh, are. Better built for it than others. Oh, no question. No question at all. Yeah. Uh, It will. Yeah. The design of some cities will will certainly hinder their proliferation that. Yeah. That there's no doubt that that's a thing. Um, I'm just thinking of like Houston. Well, I mean, where I used to live, Valencia, uh, you know, one of the northernmost uh, suburbs of L.A., um, all of the main thoroughfares are really just interstates with, with lights. Right. They have this quote unquote Paseo system, which is 
a bunch of bike paths, but they're made so deliberately twisty and windy. It's hard. It's hard to go more than about eight miles an hour on them. They're yeah. not really effective transportation for a bicycle, uh, yeah. but it's a great way to take your kids out and let them ride in a straight line and not really ever learn how to turn. <laughs> Ooh, that was maybe a little, <laughs> oof, that was, that was sharper than you expected. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, that was, that, yeah. Veritable glass shard there. Speaking yeah. of e-bikes and practical transportation, whatever became of you and yours? It's in the basement and I remain so angry at it that I have not been riding it, but the spring is coming and uh, I will get get back to it. Well, I mean, did you ever actually secure a workable battery? Yes. After many months, uh, the company in question, Van Moof, uh, did take the bike back. And then after some more months, they did the 10 minute battery swap and sent it back to me. (laughs) But it was an, it was an eight or nine month ordeal trying Mm -hmm. to get them to fix it. And so I don't know. I like, I'm just emotional. You know, I I'm in love with my bikes, but I'm not in love with that one. Cause what a, what a, what a ass pain uh, that Mm -hmm. all was to deal with. Um, Yeah. And, and I'm a big fan of pedaling. I mean, I think there will be uses for the e-bike, uh, but they'll be f- they'll be somewhat narrow mm-hmm. at my house. And that was, you know, I wanted to get an e-bike to kind of understand how useful it would be to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think what I've learned is, and this may just be like some sort of um, adopted puritanical ideal, but I just don't, I, I don't know. I like to pedal. I don't like... <laughs> <laughs> I just I always feel like I'm cheating when I press that button. Right, right. I'm not a fan of the button. Uh mine does not have a right. button. Um right. yeah. I I will confess a certain uh fair weather aspect, uh what with my California self and all. Um yeah. you and I have a, a mutual friend in the industry, Chris DeStefano. Chris cut his teeth at Shimano, uh, went on to Rafa, has done time with Chris King, uh, and now Chrome, or at least most recently Chrome. Uh, yeah. And what? He's not at Chrome Portland. anymore. Yes, right. he's done. He's done like two other. Jo- anyway, yes, Chris <laughs> DeStefano. Uh, I was on the phone once with Chris, and he lives in Portland and moved to Port. Left Shimano just because he wanted to move to Portland. That's mm. how that unfolded, like almost twenty years ago. And he said, rain pants are not a thing. And I was like, what? And he's like, look, I've owned them all. I live in Portland. I commute by bike. Uh, there's nothing that keeps me, keeps me dry. And that's when I realized that I was not ever going to move to Portland. <laughs> um, if, if you can be a bike commuter and guarantee yourself of being wet on most days, or at least entirely too many days. <sighs> yeah, that's, that's, mm, no, that's not me. I mean, the bike culture in Port, there are three places that really impress me. Portland is one, Seattle mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. another, mm-hmm. and the third is Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it's cold here where I live in Boston, and we get snow and blah, 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 but we don't get anything like what happens in Minneapolis. And my Minneapolis, uh, 
uh, bike riding friends just go and go and go and they are tough and there are a lot of them um the thing i'll say about seattle is it rains there quite a lot uh <laughs> yep. even though everyone who lives there tells you it's not it's not so bad and not so much but it rains there a hell of a lot and i've spent time there and i know mm-hmm. and what's amazing to me about it is you see people riding their bikes clearly riding their bikes to work and back um and they are not what i would call bike nerds they're not they are literally transporting themselves i yeah. don't think these are people who swap over and you know pile miles on the weekend or you know ride single track i think these are just people who ride around town and they are hardy mm-hmm. and they just there are so many of them and it makes my makes my heart warm as i sit in one of their cafes and watch them ride by <laughs> well jennifer previously told me that she uh for a long time was just kind of a bike commuter um she wasn't you know she's never done a group ride um and mm. yeah uh she was a a very faithful bike commuter she also owned a cadillac that was about 40 feet long and so <laughs> i don't think driving it was especially uh practical um but i mean the, the to to own a car that makes a bicycle more practical than the car is kind of a remarkable achievement if i may it's a good move. It's yeah. a good move. I've, yeah. I'm very in favor of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will also say um, that commuters are some of the toughest yeah. riders that I know of. And I'm just talking about people who commute. Mm-hmm. I'm not talking mm-hmm. about the, the do both or do it all kind of people. Yeah. I'm saying. And their bikes are so cool and they vary so much. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Years and years ago when I was living in Northampton and working for Northampton Bicycle, uh, a woman came in with this old Holdsworth frame. So this was a hand-built frame out of England, and it was this beautiful kind of slightly darker cerulean blue, not quite an aquamarine, just a gorgeous color. And um, she used it for commuting. And was largely unaware that she had a front derailleur. <laughs> um, and she came in one day for some service and mentioned, you know, I've been meaning to ask about this for a while, but there's some there's some noise down here. Uh, and she points down in the general vicinity of the crank and pedals and whatnot. There's some noise down here. And I'm wondering if you could uh, maybe take a look at that. Well, she was riding small enough cogs, but with the front derailleur trimmed all the way to the inboard, all the way to the left. Yeah. So that the chain was always rubbing on the front derailleur. (laughs) The front derailleur cage was worn to the point that some of it was no longer present. Right. I mean, like another, I don't know, another 16,000 miles and she would wear right through the whole front derailleur. Yeah. And this was, this was an old campy Nuva record drill. I mean, you know, t- tougher than some Marines. Uh-huh. And she had managed to wear, you know, yeah, she, the, the chain had taken off metal 
I, I still am sort of amazed by that. And then we found pinholes in the frame from rust. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, bike commuters, dedicated bike commuters are a very special breed of person. Yes. Yes. They have our cheers, uh, but possibly not. Well, I won't speak for you. They don't have my envy, but they have, yeah, my admiration. Yes. Yeah. Long may they continue. Yeah. Alrighty. Let's move on to Paceline Picks. All right. Um, I've been watching and keeping up with the Euro race season uh, on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, there, there are a few good options for getting concise highlights packages. NBC Sports does... Uh, Good job. The UCI channel actually is much better than anything I would expect to come out of the UCI. And and the one I like best, uh, Eurosport. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was a time when, you know, you would hope to get have a cable provider who somehow through some arcane backdoor access would give you Eurosport. Right. Uh, or Eurosport feeds on some other channel. Uh, but now Eurosport has its own channel on YouTube, so you can just watch their race coverage all the time, and that's great. Uh, I don't really have the hours it takes to watch races beginning to end, as I suspect most <laughs> folks don't. Uh, but a 10-minute recap at the end of the day? Yeah, I have time for that. And it keeps me posted on what the major characters are doing on both men's and women's sides. Hmm. Um I would probably never sit and watch Omloop Het Noiseblad, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, and certainly not both men's and women's races. That's just too much. But mm-hmm. I'd gladly give it 20 minutes of attention to get the story for both races. Okay. Okay. Uh, uh. The other day I watched Strada Bianchi highlights, both uh-huh. of which were very entertaining, particularly the finish of the women's race. I won't spoil that here. You should go look at it because it was awesome. <laughs> Um, that's a that's a great race, by the way. Yeah. Um, there was a time when I read Euro cycling magazines and tried hard to find full race coverage. Mm-hmm. Those days are over. Uh, <laughs> given what we've been through with pro cycling, I'm not willing to in- invest emotionally as I had before. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a quick video package is the right way to consume the story of pro racing now for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if you've been looking for a way to get back into it or just to be entertained for a few minutes, give Eurosport on YouTube a shot. All right. All right. Well, that may happen. Uh, My pick this week is one of the aforementioned uh, bikes that I I had in my poll. The brand new bike from Specialized, the Globe Hall ST. So. The Globe, uh, the Globe brand was something that Specialized launched, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, and that was their line of kind of townie bikes. Uh, it's now been retooled into an e-bike brand. And uh, it's meant, uh, in terms of marketing position, to go head-to-head with the D2C brands, direct-to-consumer. So this is a bit more expensive than those largely sub-$2,000 uh, bikes, uh, it goes for $2,700, but it is exceedingly well-designed. It's got a 700-watt motor, uh, a 772-watt-hour battery. It also features round tubes rather than these wild hydroformed tubes. And when mm. I saw that, I didn't need anyone to translate for me what they were doing there. Um, 
if you've got these cool, swoopy, hydroformed aluminum tubes, I know one thing about your company, that you have a very good relationship with a mill because they have the tooling to make that for you. I also know that if anything goes wrong at that mill, you are up a certain creek of um, effluent. Mm. Uh, going with round aluminum tubes and diameters that are readily available from a variety of mills uh, means that you are unlikely ever to have uh, A, an interruption in production just due to lack of tubing, but B, it also means that if your relationship with that mill uh, gets sideways and the price goes way, way up, you can turn around and talk to a different mill. Mm. That's no problem at all. Um, the thing also has uh, more brazons than a touring bike. Mm. I've counted no less than four different sets of bottle bosses on bolt, it. Bolt all the stuff to it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's got two other bosses, big big mounts on the head tube so that you can mount a basket there. Um, the rack and back you can put on a little bench seat and a little, it looks kind of like a, what we used to call sissy bars. I, that wouldn't be a politically correct term these days, but I don't have another, you know, those U-shaped bars that were on the backs of, of bikes when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it has a little handlebar kind of like that and some foot pegs and wheel skirts. Uh, and they have some really cool panniers, if you can call them that saddlebags, I don't know, that are just like big plastic buckets. Uh, you could shovel sand into them. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know why you do that, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, say proceed. Could uh, you jump it? Do you think you could jump it? I couldn't. I'm sure you could though. I'm, well, I don't know if I could, but I would try. Yes. Yes. Of, of that, we can rest assured. Yeah. And you know, what with the 13 gauge spokes and all and 20 inch wheels, you're actually sort of unlikely to damage it in any significant way. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a, you know, it's a really, really neat bike. Um, also 20 inch wheels are easier to stop than bigger wheels. Mm -hmm. So generally we often see smaller brake rotors on 20 inch wheels. Well, because this is meant to be a utility bike and carrying stuff and whatnot, they went with hydraulic disc brakes and 203 millimeter rotors. Oh, wow. That that thing will stop on a dime and leave you nine cents change. And if you get a flat, you can just keep rolling on the rotor because it's the same size as the wheel. <laughs> just about. Just yeah. about. Yeah. 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 They went with a MicroShift nine speed drivetrain. MicroShift is a brand that has no presence in the U.S., but they've been making nice workable parts for 15-ish years anyway, a, a okay. while. I've been seeing their stuff for a long, long time. Hmm. Um, and, you know, it works really well, and they've done uh, a, a, a study in, in creativity in terms of creating drivetrains that uh, don't infringe upon shimano's voluminous patents mm. uh creating a drivetrain and not infringing upon some shimano patent uh is well it's a little bit like evil knievel jumping the snake river canyon well that that actually uh, didn't go very well <laughs> yeah well that's my point unlikely to be successful sure sure yeah sure. yeah so uh it's a 
It's a really, uh, it's a really cool little uh, e-bike, and it's brand new on the market. You can order it now, um, and I think that this is a, a a neat development. Oh, one other little thing that I really love about it: it's got a torque sensor uh, mounted under the bottom bracket, so it doesn't use a cadence sensor. I think that makes a big difference in the quality of the ride on an e-bike. Uh, death to cadence sensors. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i don't uh you've explained this to me before i don't entirely get it right uh, uh but uh now without understanding it i will adopt this as a mantra death to cadence sensors yeah well so a cadence sensor you've got to do somewhere between half and three quarters of a pedal stroke sometimes even a full pedal stroke uh before the motor kicks in right and um a cadence sensor is simply an on off switch. Um, and so when you're pedaling, it goes, Oh, Hey, look, he's pedaling. Okay. Let's turn on the motor. And it, it's about that sort of lag. Uh, it takes a second. Um, and then based on whatever PAS level someone has, uh, chosen, it will apply however many Watts out of its total wattage, uh, and zoom you up to that speed, no matter how hard you're pedaling. You can ghost pedal, which is just turning the pedals enough to keep the cadence sensor woken. Um, and it, you know, the bike will just kind of go. Yeah. Um, a torque sensor senses input at the pedals and it produces power in proportion to how much power you're putting out. So it's a smoother ramp. It's instantaneous. Uh, and it is a proportional multiplication of your effort. So it, that's where that real experience of kind of the hand of God pushing you along. It's like, oh, wow, I'm awesome. I need a torque sensor as, uh, with assist for my life because I'm usually pretty torqued and I could use the help. Yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if there was a torque sensor on parenting, uh, especially especially meal planning and cooking, mm. I would. I would absolutely go in for that. Well, yes. specialized, get on that. Yeah. They've got some really creative people judging from this bike. Yeah. Yeah. So, all righty. Uh, well, that's a wrap on another episode of the pace line. Uh, we got to wind this one up, huh? You're going to Vermont. Yes. Uh, this is where we ask you to subscribe. If you have not already, go ahead, click that button now and send us questions. I just want to say on that subscription thing, um, interesting development. So we have on the site uh, three, five and ten dollar subscriptions and they are voluntary. The access you get for those dollars are equal. Um, there is also a tip jar there, which I mentioned on one of the other podcasts and people started using. And I think it, it was just just for people who don't want that monthly commitment, but they don't mind dropping uh, dropping some dollars for some good content. So I'll just tell you, you can subscribe. We would love if you subscribed. If you just want to help us out one time, hit that tip jar. Awesome. Uh so, yeah, if you've got questions, drop by the Cycling Independent. And if you haven't already, check out our other podcasts, Revolting, which lives up to its name, but is highly entertaining. Um, and our new show, The Long Way Home. We stuck one of those in the feed for the pace line. So hopefully you've given that a listen. Uh, that's the podcast that we don't have a tagline for. Uh, but it's 
It's a long form work written, uh, written, uh, uh, sorry, uh, long form work that is read by the person who written it there. That should be more grammatical like now. Uh, as, as I've compared it uh, for some folks, it's more audible than fresh air. And hey, maybe consider leaving us a review wherever it is you find us. It's one of the ways that we find out that there's something we need to fix, honestly. Yeah, but you can tell uh, us you love us too, because everyone just needs love and encouragement. Everyone. Yeah, especially us sensitive sorts. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty. Until next week. I'm Patrick Brady with John Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line. Thank you.